tend to do in these talks, I'm going to start off with what I think is a slightly provocative statement um, and leave it to sink into your consciousness. Um, the statement is this, and I'm going to come back to it towards the end of the talk, is do we have the courage to love? Do we have the courage to care? Do we have the courage to create conditions for letting go? Because in a way, that's the challenge. The challenge is to move into forms of behaviour where we care, we love, and letting go can occur. I'll come back to that later on, because I want to pick up on the topic that I started last night, which is the topic of ethics. This absolutely fundamental issue in Buddhist thought. So much so, it's so fundamental to the whole Buddhist perspective that the great component, the great component of the Pali Canon, which is known as the Abhidharma, or the Abhidharma, the other Dhamma is really concerned with ethics. It's Buddhist psychology, it's both a philosophy, a psychology, and more importantly, it's an ethics. And the whole virtue of the other Dhamma material, particularly the two important books, I'm not going to go into the details of this, but the two important books of it, are concerned with ethical consideration. So much so that the, the contents of the very first book of the Upper Dhamma, something uh, which is known as the Dhamma Sangani in Pali, which I always say has got one of the great titles, even in translation, it just makes you want to grab it off the shelf. Um, actually, it's good for insomnia, this particular book. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's just called The Enumeration of Phenomena. <laughs> I mean, doesn't that just grab you as a title? <laughs> <laughs> you might find out who done it, did it at the end, but never mind. Um, but the, the enumeration of phenomena, despite its rather dry title, is actually a listing of all the contents of the mind. I mean, <laughs> talk about a, a kind of achievement, trying to list it out. Say, list out all the contents of the mind. Um, I mean, this goes into a lot of detail, and this is where you find, for example, the 121 forms of consciousness, where you find details of every mental event that's likely to arise in the mind. And it's so, so detailed, but from the consideration of the thing I want to talk about tonight, the important thing about the contents of the mind is they're listed in terms of their ethicality. So when it comes to mental functions and mental events, then they're listed according to whether they are wholesome or they are unwholesome. And the basic premise is, of course, that um, the whole of the other Dharma, in fact, is actually a guidebook, a map, the sort of things I talked about a few nights ago, is a guidebook or a map to Vipassana practice, nothing else. It's a guidebook and then a very, very detailed map to the whole practice of the Pasana. And this ethicality and the ethical listings that we find is absolutely, as I say, fundamental to what we're doing. Because what we're trying to do, ultimately, with this clear seeing, <coughs> this clear vision that we're hoping to develop in practice, is to develop insight 
into unwholesome and wholesome categories into both of those, into the kusala and akusala, the wholesome and the unwholesome categories of mind. For what reason? Well, obviously the very simple reason, because one needs to be developed and the other needs to be diminished. It's as simple as that. And in many ways this fits into that formula that I gave you, I think, night one, could have even been night two, I can't remember now, it seems a long week. Mm-hmm. Um, but I gave you that formula from the Dhammapada, you know, to cease to do what is unwholesome, to learn to do what is wholesome, to purify the mind. That is the teaching of all the Buddhas. So the listing part, this identification of the wholesome and unwholesome, is what is done in the Abhidhamma as a guide to what we're going to actually see in meditation. Now. I'm not going to presume most of you are going to read the Abhidharma or even begin to look at it. As I say, it's a cure for instant insomnia, an instant cure for insomnia, um, because it is so certain, it is so dry. But I think we can, what we can take away from that is that ethicality is the primary driving force behind Buddhist practice. It's becoming wholesome in the world. You know, it's not developing nice states, as I've said, and I do want to reiterate this, and I'll probably say this even in the last you know, night, tomorrow night, and on the final roundup, I'll say this, this is what it's about. It's becoming wholesome in this world, learning to be in another way, learning to be in a way, coming back to my original statement right at the beginning, in a courageous way which allows us to drop much of what passes um, for so-called ethical behaviour, which is mere conditioning. That is all. So what we're doing, in a way, in this practice, is softening ourselves up, de- developing an ethical sensibility, an ethical sensitivity, which often is lacking in ordinary life because we don't see. We literally don't see. We don't drop the conditioned behaviour, we don't drop the blinkers, that obscures our vision of things. And so ethics is at the foremost, and foremost of even this listing, and I only want to kind of pick out two terms, which, again, many people might have heard me talk about these, but these are actually really, really important. Two terms which govern all ethical behaviour according to this system. And it's so important that the Buddha describes these two terms in the text. Uh, as guardians of the world, Lokapala. These are guardians of the world. They're guardians of the world in the sense that they're guardians of our behaviour and in a sense having or lacking these either makes us animalistic or raises above the purely instinctual and animalistic. Um, And the Buddha makes this very, very clear in the text. And it occurs in quite a number of places and is pretty unequivocal about it. And these two terms are the terms in Pali, Hiri and Utapa, which means shame or self-respect. Shame is the more traditional translation, self-respect is much more my translation. Or fear of wrongdoing and Utapa, fear of wrongdoing, or decorum the way that we are with each other. And these are the spheres of both ethics and morality. And 
these are described, as I say, as both being powers and guardians of the world. Now let me try and describe these, and then I'll try and put them into what they actually mean in daily life again, because that's obviously where it counts. These terms really, um, let's take the first translation, let's take the primary translation of the term here, which is shame. It's this immediate sense of raising something where we feel ashamed in our own eyes about having done something wrong. So, as Buddha Gosa puts it in the, in the commentaries, what is foremost in the feeling of shame is how we see ourselves in our own eyes. Not how others see us, but how we see ourselves. It can be allied, of course, to conscience and feelings of self-respect, which is why I use this, because these are the sorts of things, you know, the kind of practices that we might engage in that once we have done them, make us feel ashamed, or we raise them to, into our conscience, and they make us feel very, very unhappy. In other words, we've somehow failed in our own eyes. Not in somebody else's eyes, not in the kind of moral, ethical goalposts that have been given us by society, but how, in a sense, we have a way, a feeling of our own ethicality in the world, and that we breach that, and we cross that, at a feeling of great misery to ourselves because we feel the sense of shame that arises. On the other hand, we have the fear of wrongdoing. And as Buddha Gautam makes it very clear in, again, the commentary on this, that the fear of wrongdoing, or decorum, because I use the word decorum because it's about our intersense of being as a society and as a community, our intersense of being is dependent on kind of morals or rules of society. And remember the word morality itself is derived from simply a Latin term, more, which means consensus, a consensus of a society. So the morals of one society might be different from the morals of another society. And what is important in the moral consideration is, of course, the judgment of others upon your actions. These two are considered to be, as I say, absolutely essential to any moral considerations, moral ethical considerations, and in fact so much so that these can be divided into the fear of morals when we deal with Otapa, in terms of fear of wrongdoing, I'll stick to the traditional translation so I won't confuse you, and the fear of ethics when we start talking about hearing, when we talk about this of shame that arises. Now, in terms of our ordinary life, and might I say one thing here, um, and I talked about a lot of things we could have courage for in the beginning, well one of the things we also have to have courage for is to behave well in this world ethically and morally, because it ain't simple. <laughs> um, Buddhist ethics and morals do, make, do not make life more simple, they actually make it more complicated. Uh, they make it more difficult. Um, and that is because of impermanence, change, coming back to the theme of the week. Because every situation, every ethical moral situation we find ourselves in will be different. It might have aspects and resemblances to something that we've dealt with before, 
but it will not be the same. And so any ethical, moral consideration requires a receptivity and responsibility which is unique in each given occurrence. Now I might just at the second pause and contrast that, as I did slightly last night when I was talking about the precepts, and we'll come back to the precepts because these are the, obviously the most basic fundamental ways of orientating ourselves in the world in that an ethical way, in that if we contrast this with prescriptions, prescriptions are nice little rules that tell you what to do and what not to do. And actually, they're a lot easier. You notice that? If somebody says, don't kill, go, mm, okay, I won't kill. Um, don't steal, well, that sounds reasonable. Don't tell lies. Now, I related those, of course, last night. I related them to the precepts, which actually show this sensitivity, this much more, in a sense, ambiguous, slightly vague way of their being phrased, which allows us to use them as tools of inquiry rather than as prescriptions. They are no ethical prescriptions in Buddhist thought. They might seem so because often the translations are bad uh, and nothing else. Um, what we generally get is a sense of having to inquire into our ethical moral life. And these fears of our own personal sense of what is right and what is wrong ethically and our sense of the morals of our society and the demands, if you like, of living in community because community makes demands and most of the morals that we have are to ease, um, to ease the wheels of society so they flow a lot easier even in a monastery, um, in a Buddhist monastery. The reason why there are so many rules 227 in the Theravadan monastery, more actually in Tibetan and uh, some of the other vineyards, the other vineyard traditions, the other rule governed traditions of the monastic communities. The reason there are so many rules is actually a lot of them basically are about the decorum of monks and the way they behave with each other. In other words, to ease the, if you like, the wheels of monastic life for very simple reasons. And monks don't get on the nerves of each other. <laughs> because that happens. And as you can see within society, it can easily happen. That we can easily get on the nerves of each other, we can upset people, um, and this is really what the fundamental condition of morality is about. It's about keeping us in a way where we live in a slightly more harmonious state. Ethics is something else, and actually sometimes ethics can be against the mores of a society. And I think probably a lot of us have very strong ethical feelings, and the Buddha, in a sense, would slightly encourage that. But he's also adding a caveat to this, don't think your ethics are right, because they can only be tested in relation to the mores of your society. But also, don't think the mores of your society are right either. So in other words, our ethical moral behaviour in this world is a result in a way of a dialogue, a conversation and a dialectic between those two poles. Between the poles of hearing and utter, between shame and fear of wrongdoing. 
Remember, fear of wrongdoing is how others see us. And so actually what we fear is the judgment of others. I mean, have you ever seen those scientists that says, don't walk on the grass? The reason why you don't walk on the grass is not because you don't want to walk on the grass. You're fine, somebody might see you walking on the grass. Yeah. That's a very banal instance. But in other words, the kind of fear of the judgment of another prohibits you from doing certain things. Now, that's a very, very banal instance. Yet I think, obviously, it illustrates what I'm trying to say. So, the morals of our society, in a way, keep us in check without the arisal of true ethical values. The true ethical values that we can perhaps have to arise from within. Now, our ethical values, well, let's take some ethical values that some of us might have even before we even studied the Dharma, for example. We might have a very strong ethical feeling that it's wrong to kill other beings. And I'm sure that's probably the case for many of you. Many of you would have probably had this strong sense of something to do with an ethics of that sort. Perhaps not. I'm assuming, I'm making the assumption, the hypothesis, that's probably true for a lot of you. We might have many of the kinds of things which perhaps written into the precepts has something we already felt intuitively was right about it. And actually, if we transgress these, if we actually overstep the mark with a lot of these, we wouldn't really care about the judgment of others. We would care about our judgment on ourselves. That we've kind of lost or fallen short of the ethical mark that we've set, you know, that we've set for ourselves. Not that anybody else has set for us, but the ethical mark that we've set for ourselves. Yet, of course, um, this being a very subjective personal form of ethics, it might bear very little relationship to what is actually going on. So we need the strictures of morality as well to, in a sense, balance the subjective considerations that we bring into the world in a sense of our own personal ethics. Now it is that dialogue, that conversation, if you like, between these two poles, in a very, very practical sense, which has to go on in everyday life. Because sometimes society requires us to do things perhaps that go against our own true ethical values. For example, we might find holding to the virtue of non-killing as an ethical consideration that suddenly, I don't know, in a society arises something like conscription, they all tell you to go to war and kill. Perfectly legal, within the society. In fact, you'd probably be in prison for not killing, not going out and doing things. And, you know, we don't have too many things in the recent past which don't remind us of that, that actually that has been a big consideration, people trying to avoid going off and having to kill others. So sometimes taking the ethical stance means going against the mores of your society, because the mores of your society are exactly that. They're mores, they're changeable, they're impermanent. Now, of course, we'll be changing, um, as we see, within the kind of new laws that arise, given all sorts of exigencies in the world, all sorts of things happening. New laws come into consideration, new laws are formulated for us. These become new moral edicts for us to try and follow. 
yet they're not always right. And it's this looking at the balance between the two that becomes so important for us. The demands of our society and the demands of our own ethical consideration and putting those actually in dialogue together. So I hope you're getting the impression, because I'm not trying to make it easy, it isn't easy. There is no easy way of ethical being in the world. Being ethical in this world, the most important thing, as far as I'm concerned, is an extremely difficult proposition. Because it has and makes so many demands of us. It makes a demand on our sensitivity, which might not be there. It makes a demand on us weighing and looking at the considerations of the individual as opposed to the considerations of society, for example, in each instance. So the Buddha does not make it easy. He does not give you a whole list of rules and regulations. Um, Even the growth of the monastic code itself wasn't something the Buddha fully formulated. And it's interesting, actually, I always say it's great fun to read the Vinaya, something called the Vinaya, which actually is about the growth of the moral code, the ethical code that the monks live by. Because basically the Buddha didn't come along and say, OK, lads, we've got 227 rules, you've all got to follow them. What actually happened was, one monk would say to the Buddha, hmm, there's a monk over there doing such and such, is that permissible? And the Buddha would say, hmm, yes or no, depending on what he was doing. And so, in fact, the rules grew up organically. They grew up out of people's behaviour, not out of a kind of idealised way of being as a set of prescriptions that the Buddha laid on his followers. Equally so with the precepts. The precepts, again, as one hopefully can see, and I'll go through them again in a second, can hopefully can see are not a list of ethical prescriptions. They're actually much more vague, much more ambiguous, and they are deliberately so. And I hope I made that point last night. If not, I'm making it again. (laughs) Because it is so important. So if we start at the very beginning of the precepts again, just running through them, I undertake the rule of training. Notice it's a rule of training. Rules of training are not absolute. Let's make that quite clear. They are not absolute. Sometimes, not so much actually in relation to the five precepts, but sometimes in relation to the monastic precepts, which actually have the same kind of formulation, I undertake the rule of training to refrain from a whole list of 227 rules. The Buddha actually tells his monks off for not breaking the rules. He says, actually, they've become too attached to the rules. In other words, they're not behaving ethically because they're trying to behave too much according to the rules. And so when one particular monk is sick and all these monks are just ignoring, ignoring him because they're obeying their code, their, their monastic code, he comes up and tells them off. Tells them off and saying, why aren't you helping this monk who is sick? Because that is about compassion. That is about kindness. That is about love for another, not about keeping rules in this very abstract, absolutist fashion. And so, the reason why that formulation of that they are rules of training is they are not moral, ethical, absolute at all. They are exactly are that. They are like 
the sorts of things we do sitting on a cushion, we are training ourselves. That is what we're doing. Outside of having any real ethics and morals for ourselves, then these provide the guidelines. And that is what I mean by training. They're providing the rudimentary, those fundamental guidelines to orient our behaviour in the world. But again, the Buddha does not make it easy because he places them in a deliberately equivocal, slightly ambiguous formulation. So I undertake the rule of training to refrain from harming living beings. And as I said to you last night, what is so important about that is it's not just killing, which is obvious. That's a very, very obvious rule. Yeah, this is something more. It's saying all the possible ways that we can enter into harming living beings. Think about it. <laughs> There's actually a myriad of ways that we can enter into harming living beings. Thought, word, deed. All of those ways that come through those mediums. All of those ways that we can actually harm beings. So killing, obviously, is, is the most obvious, I should say. Killing is the most obvious, but there are many, many more subtle ways. Even truth itself can be a weapon. It can be something to create harm. Forms of speech, as we're going to see later on, are also other ways of creating harm. Two. I undertake the rule of training to refraining, to refrain from taking what is not offered, or some formulations, what is not freely given. Yeah. Well, not stealing would be a lot easier. Because there are so many things that we appropriate which are not freely given. All sorts of things. I've probably done it in myriads and actually appropriating lots of quotations <laughs> which haven't been freely given. <laughs> But you can see how subtle this examination of what is freely given, what is freely offered, can be if we really take it to its logical conclusion. So it opens up again another sphere in terms of our behaviour. And it's not easy. Because we really, really do have to bring the eye of awareness to bear on that form of behaviour when we take things, when we appropriate things when we appropriate as we so easily do. I undertake the rule of training to refrain from sexual misconduct. Reasonably unambiguous comparatively to the others. As I said last night, this can obviously refer to all the major forms of sexual transgression, particularly being unfaithful to partners, um, engaging in promiscuous behaviour. These will all be considered to be forms of sexual misconduct. But I think it would also come down to forms of sexualized speech as well, which also will be considered as ways of sexual misconduct too. In other words, the kind of sexual innuendos that people use, the double entendres that you hear, you know, again, kind of stuff of office parties, <laughs> I tend to think. Um, and then we come down, obviously, to the next one. I am the rule of training to refrain from false speech. 
not as simple as not telling lies. Again, that would be much, much easier. So it really means there's coming into an examination of our speech, of what we're doing with our speech. Because sometimes our speech is doing nothing, literally. When it's doing nothing, it's idle speech. Just like when an engine idles. When an engine is idling, it's doing nothing particularly, it's just on, it's just going round, chunking, you know, sort of chuntering away. Um, and often that's what idle chatter or idle speech is. It's a speech which isn't doing anything. And false speech itself, of course, can be any form of exaggeration, any form of embellishment that we add to our language. Yeah. It could be, I'm saying rather than actually the definite thing, it could be those embellishments that we add. So therefore we need to examine the whole role of speech. In fact, sometimes when we look at speech, and of course remember in the Eightfold Path, there's a whole category of what's called appropriate speech. Yeah. Sama or samyak actually means appropriate rather than right, which is usually translated as appropriate speech. Yeah. What is appropriate speech? Well, actually says what it's not. <laughs> well, it's not idle chatter, for one thing. It's not false speech. It's not divisive speech. And it's not harsh speech, either. And in fact, sometimes appropriate speech might actually be silent itself. Because that might actually be the appropriate response. <coughs> in many instances. Idle chatter, of course, fills up space. Again, because we're frightened of the vacuum of silence, often. And I think one of the one of the absolute basics of coming on a retreat, such as a ten day retreat here, and living in silence for that ten days, apart from these odd moments, you know, when we can engage in dialogue perhaps at the end of the day, is that you get to examine your forms of speech and the necessity for your forms of speech. So when we talk about engaging in, or refraining from engaging in false speech, then it actually means to look really closely at our forms of speech. Speech is ethical behaviour too, let's not forget that. fundamental form of ethical behaviour. And then we come to the very last one, which is the one that always gets wet. <laughs> I understand the rule of training to refrain from taking intoxicants that will cause <coughs> heedlessness. It's a lovely term, isn't it? Heedlessness. <laughs> what it actually means, if you listed the five precepts, if you listed them yeah, in, a, in a kind of basic list, one to five, when it says, I'm taking all training to refrain from taking intoxicants which will cause heedlessness, what it means is it will cause you, if you take intoxicants, to commit all of the above. <laughs> <laughs> because that's actually what it means. Under the influence of intoxicants, we engage in false speech, sexual misconduct, you know, taking what is not offered, and sometimes harm. So it's as basic as that. That is the reason why. It's not through simple prudery. (laughs) 
but there is this rule or this rule of training about taking some forms of intoxicants. Also it disturbs that in some formulations you get fuller formulations of certain commentaries as it disturbs the balance of the mind. And remember, you know, what you've been doing for this last seven days is actually trying to create a balance in the mind. To create awareness, to create focus, ways of inquiry using the mind, inquiring for example in the last few meditations into the awareness of death and what it means to us. Yet, if I take intoxicants, it can destroy the lot. Almost immediately. Because it destroys any balance that is created within the mind. Again, I really do want to emphasize, this is not prudery. It's not saying you shouldn't drink out of some sort of moralistic finger wagging. It's actually saying, look, if you're engaging in meditation practice and you're really, really serious, why do you want to take something that's actually going to disrupt the mind rather than create stability and harmony within it? Why do you want to take something to disrupt the mind? Well, again, it's through all the usual attachments that we want to take. You know, take something that disturbs the balance of the mind. All the usual things. That life is difficult. Yeah. I've had a hard day at work. All the kinds of stories that we can tell ourselves about why you need a drink. Or why you need some particular intoxicant. Yeah. That is the reason why that we have this rule. This rule of training. Emphasis on the rules of training. Yeah. They are guidelines to move us into an ethical sphere of inquiry <coughs> and understanding. And that is how we should use them. And actually, in terms of lay life, they should be at the forefront of our minds. Day in, day out. At the forefront of our minds is what we're doing. They should bring that awareness and that sensitivity to our daily interactions with others. Because that is obviously where it counts. It's not about something which is you know, isolated to our own sense of self or ego. This is about our interrelations with all other types of beings. Out of that unbalanced mind, out of that disturbed mind with intoxicants, we create harm very, very easily, as we see so often on the streets. Yeah. And the kind of foolish behaviour that people engage in under the influence of alcohol and intoxicants. So those five precepts, sometimes are expanded, by the way, <laughs> uh, on special days in traditional cultures, they're expanded into either eight or ten precepts. In other words, they end up looking a bit more monastic by that. And one of those, and God, they go to hell, doesn't do that. It's not eating after midday. That's one of the other, <laughs> one of the other precepts. Um, but these again are rules of training that bring you into an awareness obviously the amount of food we consume and the necessity of the amount that we consume too. There are other ones but I won't get into them because they're not really important for us in our ordinary day-to-day life. So that's the precepts. And the precepts, as I say, are basic moral guides in the world. Uh, the ways of opening up our sensitivity towards others. And remember 
every situation, every situation that we are in is an ethical situation. We cannot escape, we cannot evade ethics morality. I've kind of put a, a stroke between the two of them. Ethics morality. We can't avoid them. We're constantly immersed. Whatever we do in this world is an ethical moral decision. The decision to do nothing is an ethical moral decision. If I sit and do nothing. So we can't evade it. We can't escape it. It's always, in a sense, we always have a responsibility. Not in terms of guilt for others. I'll make that very clear. This is not to make us feel guilty. We have a responsibility. An ability to respond. Which, of course, brings us back to compassion. As well. Back to that thing that's so absolutely important and vital in Buddhist consideration, which is the development of compassion. In the path of the Mahayana, they talk about the development, for example, of bodhicitta. Bodhicitta is the mind which is oriented towards awakening, the full awakening of a Buddha for the benefit of all sentient beings. And the driving force behind that motivation to wish to attain awakening for the benefit of all sentient beings is compassion. It is the arising of compassion itself. And remember, I'm kind of reminding you things now because we're getting towards the end of the retreat. Rather than giving you loads more information, I want to start reminding you of things that we've talked about in the week. Remember that this compassion is a fundamental turning towards. It's a movement outward. It's a movement towards the others, away from that self-centered concern that we have. Away from our striving sense of self and our inner neuroses with which we can become self-obsessed. So it's that movement outward. Driven by, and again I didn't mention this last night, I was going to talk a little bit about this night, driven by also empathy for others. We underestimate that again, this notion of empathy. This word that I use, remember, anukrosha, anukampa. Anukrosha, anukampa means to tremble with or to cry out with. To cry out at the crying out of another. To really be pulled and moved, to be touched by the sufferings of others. And offer the greater sufferings of others than the sufferings of ourselves. This is so important that the great Buddhist poet Shantideva in the Bodhicharya Avatar, and I quoted you a little bit one of the nights, um, some of the kind of aspirations of the Bodhisattva here. But Shantideva says, it actually makes no sense, he says, to talk of my dukkha as opposed to your dukkha. It only makes sense to talk of dukkha. That is all. In other words, what we are all enmeshed in, almost going back to night one, the problem situation that the Buddha delineated. Dukkha. And it makes no sense to individuate it in a way. There is only Dukkha for us in this samsaric condition. And so therefore, instead of being isolated and having to deal simply with my Dukkha, and you having to deal with your Dukkha, which is partly a truism, but we have to help each other to deal with each other's dukkha as well. This is what the meaning of empathy is too. This is what the meaning of the genuine compassionate outreaching that's spoken about is. 
And this is also the meaning of the genuine form of love. To move out. To really be with. To have this space for the other to manifest themselves in. That space for the other to manifest themselves in can't be there, as I said again the other night. It can't be there if we're full of ourselves. If we're turned round into ourselves. The other can't be seen can't be heard. I mean, I joked about it in terms of that cartoon last night, didn't I? The other is simply not heard. Yeah. In fact, because the other is boring yeah. in comparison to what's going on within me. And so, to create that, there has to be a kind of clearing away of the self in order to let the other truly manifest, to truly be. Yeah. And that is a very difficult task for most of us. Yet, it's not without some foundation in that we exhibit it. We do exhibit it. We exhibit the feeling for others. And we always have to come back to the notion that of course we are not alone and we are interdependent in the way that I described last night in terms of the interdependence that we have is actually a truly humbling experience when we really think about it. Now, I don't know how much you thought about it since the last time I said this, but it really is truly a humbling experience if you really, really consider that. That there is nothing, in a sense, that we are not dependent on for our existence. We, if you like, are totally dependent creatures. We're not independent. The ego thinks it's a wonderful thing. It thinks it's wonderfully independent, not interdependent. I am independent. I can go my own way. I don't really need others. Actually, in your fundamental sense of being, you totally need others. There is nothing that we are not, in some senses, having to show gratitude for in our ways of being in the world, even at this moment. For example, we are dependent and have been dependent in the past on the gratitude often of our parents. Not always, because some people come from abusive relationships, but in many senses, even then, some of the fundamentals are provided for us when we're helpless. We are given language, for example, by our interrelation with our parents, our interrelation mm-hmm. with siblings. Language isn't our own. It actually is owned by everybody. It itself is an independent arising. Yeah. So we are truly, truly dependent for everything that we have, even some of the most subtle elements of our being we haven't created for ourselves, they've been received from others. And when it comes to the simple stuff that keeps us going, the food, the fabrics, the clothing, the housing, and everything else, well, I don't need to say any more, I think, in that instance. So, there has to be this turning around, a turning outward, a turning to see. Now, coming back, I'm going to finish off on where I started this evening. The courage to love. Do we have the courage to love? Do we have the courage to care? And do we have courage in general 
to be. Because this is, again, what it is about. And what I mean by that is do we have the courage to let go of everything that binds us and holds us to blind forms of behaviour, to often unexamined forms of behaviour? Even when they're examined, do we have the courage to let them go with the possibility of being different, being in this world in a different way? Because that really does take that kind of fearlessness, and that's what I mean by courage, that the Buddha spoke about and the way I kind of opened last night talking about the Buddha's gesture of fearlessness. Do we have that courage to be? Do we really have the courage to love? The love, which again, reminding you, was a love actually that can let go and not cling and not hold and really, really value and care for another in being able to let go. That is what I mean by the courage to love. Now that requires ethicality, it requires an examination of all of our entrenched attachments to ways of being examined and unexamined. What we're doing in meditation work often I feel to be a kind of archaeology of the psyche. We're digging up what has been buried (laughs) and often forgotten about. It's an archaeology in the sense that it's our history that we're unearthing. There's a myriad factors which are operative on us, both external and internal, which have conditioned our forms of behaviour in this life. Now we need to engage in this archaeology because without it there will always be conditions which will catch us out, which will create unethical behaviour. This is the reason why for this emphasis, this really strong emphasis in the tradition on buzzwords mindfulness, absolute awareness is the way I would put it. Absolute awareness of what is going on. And the question you can almost ask yourself is what is going on? Because often we don't know what's going on. We haven't got a clue what's happening or why our behaviour is giving rise to these rather aberrant, strange um, results in life. Because we haven't really got a clue of where we're coming from. And so, this archaeology is only really affected by actually awareness or mindfulness. Saying that, it doesn't have to be sombre, it doesn't have to be sad, it doesn't have to be miserable, it is extremely joyful in uprooting and seeing what is there, uncovering and acknowledging what is there. And it becomes even more joyful when you create the conditions for letting it go. Okay, I think I'll finish there this evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.